this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's bow before him before we look to explain this passage and think about it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. Thank you that it creates life in us. It gives us the power to do what it commands us to do. Holy Spirit, we thank you for inspiring this word. And we pray that just as you worked in the hearts of people like Peter and Paul to write these words, we pray that you would work in our own hearts and help us to apply your words. Help us not just to be readers of your word, but doers too. We look for your grace to do these things. Amen. Well, I wonder what you think is more frustrating. Convincing someone lacking in confidence that they can do it, or convincing a stubbornly independent person that actually, you know, you might need some help. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Husbands, wives, you know what I'm talking about. And we all have friends who fall into either one of those categories. I wonder what's more frustrating. Well, perhaps we should ask the Apostle Peter. Because these seem to be the two kinds of people he has in mind in this section of his letter. First, he's addressing people who say, I can't be godly. It's too difficult. There's no way. I've tried and I've failed. I just can't grow in godliness. And so I've given up trying. But Peter couldn't be more clear. Being a Christian means working hard to grow in godliness. The command that he gives in verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with the different virtues that he lists. That command is Peter's purpose in writing this section of his letter. In fact, it may be his main purpose for writing this whole letter. So for the person who says, I can't be godly, well, Peter needs to address them. But then we also have the person who say, I can be godly by myself. Thank you very much. Now, if you're like me, you've probably never met someone who puts it so bluntly. But we often slip into habits of trying to live that way. Trying to do what God has commanded 
in our own strength. And so Peter knows that he needs to lay the appropriate foundation for the commands to be godly. It's a gospel foundation. A foundation of grace and the power of God's. You might remember that the last time we looked at verses 3 and 4, we talked about these things. And before Peter makes the command in verse 5 to make every effort, he says, for this very reason. For this very reason, make every effort. And we'll recap on the reasons soon before moving on to verse 5. But the point is this. There is a reason why we can be godly. Christians who think they can't be godly, they need to hear that there is a reason why they can be godly. And so they should work hard to grow in godliness. But then Christians who think confidently, I can be godly, they also need to hear the reason why indeed they can. And that that reason has nothing to do with them and their ability. They too should work hard to grow in godliness, but only for the right reason. We're going to consider three reasons why we should strive to be holy. Christians should work hard to grow in godliness. Firstly, because Christ gives us the grace to be godly. Christ gives us the grace to be godly. Well, last time we looked at verses 3 and 4, we considered that it is knowing Jesus uh, as our Savior that gives us the power to be godly. And last month we looked at verses 1 and 2, and we learned there that knowing Jesus as our Savior is what makes a person a Christian. A Christian doesn't just know things about Jesus, they have a saving knowledge of him. And when Peter uses the word knowledge here, that's what he's talking about. Knowing Jesus in a personal way, a saving way. Uh, And then Peter goes on in verse 3 and 4 to talk about this saving knowledge. That through this saving knowledge, we have a foundation for growing in godliness. First of all, Peter talks about the power that we have been given to grow in godliness. The power for godliness, where does it come from? Well, it comes, verse 3, through the knowledge of him who called us. It's only when we know Jesus as our Savior that we actually have the power to follow him as our Lord. Almost anything we do needs power. We need the ability to do it. You think about someone running a marathon. Susanna and I saw plenty of joggers out this morning, even in the rain. And the power to run a marathon comes from many things. A marathon runner needs plenty of energy. They need foods and they need water. They need well-trained muscles. They need a a honed respiratory system, a, a strong heart. If they don't have the power to run, they're not going to get very far. And while Nike adverts might tell us, just do it, we can't just do it. We need power. We need something to make us go. 
uh, and Peter says that in order to grow in godliness, we also need power. The difference is that the power doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us. Now, he also says that this power, it gives us everything we need, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything we need comes from God's power. And what are these all things that Peter is talking about? Well, he, he tells us in verse 4. He says that Jesus has granted to us his, his precious and very great promises. They too come through knowing Jesus. And these are what we need to grow in godliness. It's through these, po- these promises, and this is the second half of verse 4, that we become partakers of the divine nature. That's another way of saying we become godly. We become like gods. We don't become gods, but we become like him in our behavior. Now, what are these promises that Peter's talking about? Well, last time I suggested there are many promises that become ours when we become a Christian. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit, and we need the Holy Spirit to grow. We have the promise of forgiveness when we fall, when we sin, and so we can get back up again and keep walking. And then we have the promise of Jesus coming again. And that's probably what Peter most has in mind because he goes on to talk about that a lot in the rest of his letter. But when Jesus comes again, you see, that's, that's the end goal for our growth in godliness. When he comes, that's when we will be made fully like him. That's when the making all the effort stops because the goal will have been reached. And so the promise, Peter says, is that one day he's coming and you will participate in his nature. You'll become like him. Now there's a lot that we could say about these two verses. And we've already looked at them a few months ago. So I don't want to spend much more time on them. Only to say that there are two key things to take away here. First, note the, the use of the word granted. His power has granted to us everything we need. And he has granted us his promises. He's given us what we need. Another reminder that what we need to grow in godliness doesn't come from us. We can't work up strength or power in ourselves to do what God commands us to. We need what he gives us. And then secondly, and I've already mentioned this, this all comes through the knowledge of him. Again, not knowing things about him, but knowing him as a saviour. And so that means if you're not a Christian this morning, if you come to church, you try to live a good life, you try to live a Christian life, but you don't know Christ, then you can't do what Peter is commanding you to do. But if you come to Christ, you will have everything you need to live the Christian life. So first come to Christ and then you can become Christ-like. But remember, Peter's speaking to Christians here. He's, he's reminding Christians that they need this power. 
And so we need to learn as Christians to grow in godliness. We need to depend on God to give us what we need. Depending on God, of course, looks like praying. Praying. We really underestimate the power of prayer. But if you want to depend on God to grow in godliness, you're going to need to come to him in prayer. Yes, seek grace for forgiveness, but also seek the grace to grow in godliness. Following the unnecessary deaths of some British soldiers on the battlefield, a coroner claimed in court the British soldiers were defeated, not by terrorists, but by the lack of basic equipment. Many Christians are, are trying to fight the battle to be holy without the equipment that God has given. They run into battle with water pistols instead of rifles. But on the other hand, there are many Christians who don't believe or realize or perhaps forget that they have indeed been given equipment to do the job. Peter has firmly established here that Christ has given us everything we need to pursue godliness. We have been given the grace to be godly. And because of that, Christ, our commanding officer, well, he commands us to be godly. Christ has given us the grace to be godly. Secondly, Christ commands us to be godly. And we turn now to verse 5 and through to 7. In these verses we have a bit of a list, don't we? A list of virtues. And we don't have time to consider each one in detail, but maybe I could just briefly run through them. First thing to say is this isn't a complete list of everything that a Christian is called to do. There are many lists of virtues in the New Testament. And this is just one of them. The first thing on the list that we have to add to our faith is virtue. It's the word virtue. And it's actually exactly the same word as we get in verse 3. The very last word of verse 3. Uh, Christ calls us to his own glory and excellence. Well, it's exactly the same word actually in the original language. It's virtue. It means goodness. It means moral excellence. If you like, this is the catch-all term for everything that follows. Then we have knowledge, which is slightly different from the knowledge that Peter talks about in verses 2 and 3. That's saving knowledge. This is a different word, and it probably means the, the knowledge of God's will. What we get when we read our Bibles and listen to God's word being preached. And then we have self-control. The false teachers that Peter will address soon in chapter 2, they don't live lives of self-control. They, they live how they want. And they think because of God's grace, well, that's okay. I can just be forgiven. Not so, says Peter. Then there's endurance. Again, the false teachers, they've gone astray. They haven't endured in the Christian walk. Then there's godliness. This term appears in verse 3. Remember, God has given us power for godliness. And it's the same word here. It means a respect for God's authority, which leads to obeying him and being like him. And then we have brotherly love. 
and the crowning virtue of all, love. Love which Jesus taught Peter is the fulfillment of all God's laws. If you are obeying God properly, you're loving. Love captures everything that God commands us to do. Now, that list can be a little bit demoralizing when we read it and we try and compare ourselves. But it bears repeating that the call to be godly, it flows from the grace given to be godly. Grace comes before the command and that is always the case in scripture. In fact, even looking at these few verses reminds us that growing in virtue is rooted in our calling as a Christian, our salvation. The very first thing in the list is faith. I didn't include it as one of the virtues because it's not. Peter's talking about saving faith. He mentions it back in verse 1. We have obtained this faith. What? By ourselves? By working it up in our hearts? No. By the righteousness of God, our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Faith comes first. Saving faith. And then we add the virtues to it. If we get that the wrong way around, we're doomed to failure. So Christian virtue then is different from any other system of self-improvement. As these Gentiles read this list of virtues, they would have recognized many of the terms that Peter uses. They're Greek terms. And in their culture, pursuing virtue was a noble thing. But there's a crucial difference. Whether it's our world religions or the self-help sections in our bookshop, they all tell us that we must transform ourselves. But Jesus teaches us that we must be transformed first by him before we can live transformed lives. Now, it's really quite easy to apply this, well, to understand how to apply this. Because Peter gives us the application. Make every effort. This is something that we have to work at and must work hard at. But of course, we know that we're absolutely doomed to failure, as I've said, if we don't first seek his grace to do this. One other thing that might help us to do this, of course, is to note that all of these virtues are a reflection of Jesus himself. Back in verse 3, it talks about the one who called us, and he has glory and excellence. Moral excellence. We might call it moral beauty. When we read how Jesus interacted with people, and we've been doing that, haven't we? Reading recently through Mark's Gospel. Our breath is taken away by his ability on the one hand to be courageous and call out hypocrites, and on the other hand, to stoop down beside those whom society has rejected and to show them grace 
and love. Jesus lived a life of moral beauty. And we as Christians, we have been given the power to share in his divine nature. What a call. I mean, that should be something that attracts us. Just as his moral beauty attracted us to him as Savior, so it should attract us to want to be like him, our Savior and our Lord. So, so next time you read through the Gospels, read through with a notepad in your hands and make a note of all of the things that Jesus does, the way he behaves, and pray and ask him, Lord, help me to be like that. I want to be like that. That is something to strive for. So we have seen then that Christians should work hard to grow in godliness. First, because Christ has given us the grace to obey. And second, because he has commanded us to obey. Now these reasons help Christians who think they can't be godly or that they can be godly in their own strength. But Peter goes further. And as he draws this section to a conclusion, he gives three motivations for the person who thinks or says, I don't need to try to be godly. Not I can't. Not I can. But I don't need to. When I spoke in November on verses 3 and 4, I introduced you to two friends of mine. No problem, Pat, and no hope, Harry. No, pro no problem, Pat says, I can do this myself if I just work hard enough. And no hope, Harry, he says, well, I can't do this. And he gives up. But now we meet a third friend, and his name is No Need Nick. Excuse the cheesy names. No need, Nick says, there's no need to try. I've been saved by grace. I don't need to work to grow in godliness. And he has had many different faces throughout church history. The Apostle Paul had to deal with him. The Apostle Peter's having to deal with him here. And even in the 21st century, we have movements even within the evangelical church that suggests that you don't really need to try to grow in godliness. But Peter counters this kind of thinking by saying that evidence of godly growth gives us three amazing benefits that we completely miss out on if we don't try to grow in godliness. First, evidence of godly growth assures us that we have been saved. Secondly, it prevents us from falling away. And thirdly, it accompanies a gracious welcome into heaven. Firstly then, evidence of godly growth assures us that we have been saved. The beginning of our Christian journey. Did it actually take place? Have we truly started on the road of faith? Well, that's what Peter addresses here. Verses 8 and 9, he says that, again, we need to be fruitful and effective in this saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to grow in virtue. But then in verse 10, 
he, he moves towards this first motive and he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That phrase, calling and election, it's two words that really mean the same thing. He's talking about our salvation. And in, in particular, he's talking about God's grace. Yes, we respond in faith, but God in grace calls us to this. Now, God knows that he's called us. He doesn't need any confirmation, but we do. How do we know that we truly are Christians? Well, we know because we increasingly see evidence of godly growth in our lives. And so no need, Nick has no assurance because godly growth leads to assurance now remember what is in view here we're not talking about looking at how you did last week as a christian we're talking about slow and steady progress across the christian life and kevin de young a christian author gives us a wise warning he says don't take your spiritual temperature every day you need to look for progress over months and years not by minutes and hours a another warning is that it's actually a sign of progress that you feel worse about your sin godly people feel worse about their sin than people just starting out in the journey of faith and so let me offer you a suggestion. As you reflect on your growth, do so carefully. Look for objective evidence of how you have changed. Don't focus on how you feel, but how you've actually changed. Best of all, ask someone else, someone you trust. How do you think I'm doing? How have I grown? in the Christian faith. I wonder would you have the courage to do that with a family member or a friend? And perhaps then that would give them the courage to ask you the same thing. Now secondly, Peter says that evidence of godly growth prevents us from falling away. In verse 10 again, he says, if you practice these qualities, that's the virtues, he, virtues he's, he's talked about, sorry, in verses 5 to 7. If you practice these, you will never fall. Now, we don't have too much time to consider this this morning. We'll come to it in chapter 2. The false teachers have fallen away from the faith because they haven't practiced the virtues. They haven't sought to be godly. And so here's a second motive to be godly. If we grow in godliness, we will never fall. But thirdly and finally then, evidence of godly growth accompanies a gracious welcome into heaven. Assurance that we have been saved, that's the start of our journey. Staying on the roads, that's not falling away. Well, this is the destination. Heaven. In verse 11, Peter says, in this way, that is, in growing in godliness, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom 
of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And in this sense, kingdom, it simply means heaven. Now, this verse probably appears quite unsettling at first. But listen to what one commentator wisely says. Peter's not talking about salvation by works here. Getting into heaven because of what you've done. He's talking about salvation with works. We can have a very unhelpful, almost cartoonish image of St. Peter himself, our man writing at the gates of heaven with a naughty, naughty list and a nice list. Like some sort of angelic Santa Claus. But that's not how it works. No, we're saved by grace. And that means we will get into heaven by God's grace. And we see here that this welcome is richly provided. Again, it's something that's given to us by grace. But the point is this. We obtain the faith by grace. And we've been graciously granted the power to grow in grace. And so, as another Christian author says, there ought to be evidence flowing out of us that grace has flowed into us. This is a positive motivation towards pursuing godliness. In fact, all three of these are very positive motives to pursue godliness. They lead to immense benefits, assurance in the presence, in the present, and a gracious welcome into Christ's eternal kingdom. In close then, among Peter's readers, there are Christians who think that they can grow in godliness by themselves. He's also writing to Christians who think they can't grow in godliness. And then he also has people who think there's no need to try to grow in godliness. And in this sense, his readers are no different from a 21st century church congregation. And so Peter's message for them is just as relevant for us this morning. Christians should work hard to grow in godliness because by God's grace they are able to by Christ's call they are commanded to and doing so brings benefits of immense value may we seek God's grace to grow in godliness and to enjoy the Christian life we have been called to. Let's pray. Father, as we read this list of virtues, at first it appears to us as a series of hammer blows that knock us down. And we confess our sin before you. But we thank you that just as you have given us grace in forgiving us and welcoming us into your family, so you give us the grace to slowly but surely grow in godliness. And we look to you for help. We are utterly dependent on you. 
to grow in godliness. Help us to become just like Jesus, our beautiful and excellent Saviour. Amen.